Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 in this glorious gospel uh, series that we're beginning uh, this weekend that we'll be in for a while. Next weekend uh, be a special time together. We're going to honor our veterans uh, on the 4th of July weekend. Uh, you'll not want to miss uh, next weekend. It's going to be a great time together. Uh, but I love this morning we get a chance to look at Ephesians 2. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream and also the venue service down the hall. Uh, Pastor Ryan's preaching live out at Reach Church DeSoto this morning, and so you be praying for him as he preaches there. Um, this Friday, a uh, pretty amazing day, amen? Um, we uh, saw something that I never thought in my lifetime we would ever see, the overturning of uh, Roe versus Wade. Praise the Lord. Um, we're grateful. Uh, pray for our justices. Uh, pray for those Supreme Court justices. And, and uh, we got work left to do, though, because what this does, it pushes back the states, which is good. And uh, our neighbors to the east of us uh, had a trigger law in place. They banned abortion in Missouri. Um, but guess what that means? They're going to come to Kansas, and we got to take care of this issue on August the 2nd. So listen to me. we got to vote yes. Value them both amendment. August 2nd, vote yes. Um, we do not want Kansas to become a sanctuary state for abortion, and the first step in moving that direction is to vote yes on this amendment. So let's get that done. Let's get out and vote. Let's, let's speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, all right? There's work to be done. You pray, let's continue to pray. Um, what a way in which God has shown us how nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, Ephesians 2 this morning, we've got a lot to cover. When I looked at this this week and as I was studying, I thought, boy, we could have divided this into two messages. And I thought, man, I could just leave out verse 10. And then I found out verse 10 is our theme verse for Vacation Bible School. I thought, how can I leave out verse 10 uh, when we're going to be studying this week and all of our kids? And so had to include it, but we got a lot to cover. I think I preached for about 45 minutes last night. So you're going to get more of the abridged version, all right? So if you want the full version, you've got to come Saturday nights, all right? Um, but uh, we're going to try to make our way through. You know, this is a beautiful letter to the Ephesians. Uh, it's so hard to jump into chapter 2 without looking at chapter 1. But in chapter 1, Paul reminds the Ephesian believers of all the wonderful riches that God has given to them in Christ Jesus. It's one of the most theologically rich and deep uh, chapters in all of God's Word. Just when you think it can't get any better, like the grain door is opened and God just showers us with blessings in Christ Jesus. But then in, in chapter two, there's a, there's a pause. Paul stops because there's a danger. And the danger is that we would get so caught up in what we've become in Christ that we would forget where we came from, that we would forget our spiritual family tree, that we would go get so far removed from the point of salvation that grace would grow sour in our lives and we begin to look down on those sinful people out in the world and forget that we owed just as much a debt as they owe. And so it's a good reminder of who we are in Christ, where we came from, that, that we are not, we're not a morally superior people. Meaning, it's not that we earned our salvation. It's not that we were good enough and we did all these good works and God said, wow, look how great you guys are. 
It's not that we're smarter than everybody else. That we were more intellectual and we figured this deal out. No, it's that God intervened by his grace and he saved us. And so hopefully as we study this chapter, it grows our just worship of God for what he's done for us in Christ. And hopefully it changes to some extent our viewpoint on evangelism. That we don't go out, when we go out to do evangelism, we don't go out as morally superior people. We don't go out there looking down upon people. We go out there into a world and we put our arm around somebody's shoulders and we say, hey, my name's Chad and I'm a sinner. But I found a savior, Jesus Christ. Changed my life and he can change yours too. Isn't that way evangelism's supposed to be? So I pray this grows our worship of God and what he's done for us. I pray it changes our view of evangelism. But let's just pray together and then we'll work our way through this passage. Father, we're so grateful for the grace of, that you've bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. I pray today you would speak to us. Remind us of where we came from. Remind us of what you've done. And I pray as a result of having been together and having heard your voice and your word today, we would all be changed. We met with you. God, I pray if there's anybody here watching online or in the venue service that doesn't know you, that, God, you would work in their heart to cause them to be reborn into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Change all of us today. Draw us close. Speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, Paul, in this uh, first few verses here, describes our past life apart from Christ. So look at verse one. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and, and, uh, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Notice he starts out talking about you, meaning us as Gentiles, and then he says we, referring to the Jews. What Paul is describing here is the spiritual condition of everyone apart from faith in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike. The Jews had priority in a lot of ways. They were the first to receive the law. They were the first to receive the gospel. The gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But, but, but here's the deal. We, uh, the Jews don't have priority in how we come to faith and salvation because we all stand in the same spiritual condition prior to faith in Christ. Prior to faith in Christ, it doesn't matter your lineage. It doesn't matter where you come from. We all have the same spiritual disease of sin. And we have all the same need of a Savior, which is Jesus Christ. So as we read these verses, listen, this is all of us, without exception, all of us apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And what we're described as, first of all, in this passage is dead. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins you know, in the Greek, it's the word necros, necrosis. We've probably heard of it before. But you know what the word necros means in the Greek? It means dead. <laughs> We're dead. Everyone, us apart from faith in Christ, spiritually dead. No spiritual life. You ever tried to talk to a corpse? They're not real talkative. They don't talk much. Is it because the corpse is rude? Is it because that corpse is mean? Is it because that corpse doesn't have enough education? Is it because they need more medicine or a better doctor? No, they don't respond because they are dead. 
you and I, apart from faith in Christ, are spiritually dead. We did not need more science. We did not need more education. We did not need more medicine. We needed someone who could bring us back to life. We need somebody to intervene on our behalf and cause us to be reborn. You you ask and you talk to people who don't know Christ. They have no desire to read God's word. They have no desire to get up in the morning and go to God's word and hear his voice. A person apart from faith in Christ normally has no real desire to go to church or or be around God's people. They have no desire to participate in the mission. They don't even really have a desire to deal with the innateness of their own sinfulness. Not on their own. Why? Because they're spiritually dead. And it's a deadness that's a result of our trespasses and our sins. What is a trespass? It means to to cross the line. Uh, A sin means to miss the mark. What's the line? What's the mark? Well, the mark is the righteousness of God. See, in order to go to heaven, you don't have to be as good as Billy Graham. You don't have to be as good as Bill Shiflett. You don't have to be as good as Mother Teresa. You don't have to be as good as your own mother. In order to get to God, you have to be as good as God. And when it comes to his righteousness, the righteousness of God, we all miss the mark. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. That's all of us apart from faith in Christ. We're dead. Not only were we dead, but we were enslaved. We were in bondage. That's what he says in verse 2. We formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that's now working, the sons of disobedience. We were in bondage. And he says we were in bondage, number one, to the world. That we were just dead fish floating downstream. We were in bondage to the world, just, just following this world on a path that leads to destruction. Not only were we in bondage to the world, but we were in bondage to Satan. He calls him here the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. See, we didn't just turn our back on God. We gave allegiance and loyalty to his enemy. We were following Satan. Now, most people won't say it that way, but listen to me. There's only two kingdoms, and there's only two paths. And if you're following the path of the world, who do you think is leading the world in that way? Enslaved to the world, enslaved to Satan, and then he says also enslaved to your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. We were enslaved, not not to our physical flesh, but to your sinful nature. Prior to faith in Christ, you were just following your natural desires. You were at the mercy of your own passion. You know, so many people, apart from faith in Christ, they think, I'm free. They don't want God. They don't want Christ. They don't want God's laws. They don't want God's restrictions. And so they think to themselves, I'm free. But the spiritual reality, what Paul tells us here, is they're not really free. They're in bondage to the world. They're in bondage to Satan. They're in bondage to their own flesh. And not only that, but he says here they're enslaved and they're they're objects of wrath. Look at the end of verse three. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The you and I in our sinful condition, we deserve the full weight of God's wrath. And so many people, I, I talk to folks, and it appears that they feel like God owes them something. That God owes us a a good life free from hardship and pain. Listen, why would we think that God owes us anything? What have we done that, that puts us in a position where we can demand anything from God? Who are we to get mad at God when he doesn't give us our little wish list? Listen to me, God is not Santa Claus. 
He's a holy, almighty God, and we have sinned against God. And what we have earned, what we we deserve, is the the full weight of, of God's wrath and the punishment of hell. See, Paul is reminding the Ephesians and us, this is the real This is the real spiritual condition of every one of us apart from faith in Christ. You know, most people, you ask them, why should God allow you into his kingdom? Most people tell you, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. Paul says, you're not good. None of us are good. There's none good. No, not one. All of us, dead, enslaved, objects of wrath, and there was nothing that any of us could do on our own to change our position. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Welcome to Lenexa Baptist Church. That's all of us apart from faith in Christ. But then look at verse four, because here's the turn. Two words, but God. There's an infinite amount of hope that's contained within those two simple words. You and I were in a position of total hopelessness and despair. No hope within ourselves, but God intervened. And notice here, it doesn't say, but Chad decided to turn around, cry out to God and do the right thing. No, it wasn't me who took the initiative. It was God. God opened my eyes to the depth of my sin and the beauty of my Savior. God opened my nose so that I could smell the stench of my own sin. God blew away the fog so I could see the abyss towards which I was headed. God intervened. And it says, but God being rich in mercy. See, our only hope is that God will be merciful. We have no leg to stand on, no argument, no defense. We're spiritually bankrupt. We're dead. Our only hope, our only hope is that God would be merciful. You know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what we justly deserve. And what we deserve is is death and hell. That's what we deserve. What we need is mercy. Now here's the good news. God is rich in what we need the most, which is mercy. God being rich in mercy because of his great love God is rich in mercy, he's great in love. The motivation of God's saving redemption in Christ Jesus is love. Listen to me this morning, God loves you. For God so loved the world. God loves you today. You have an infinite value to the heart of God. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He he fashioned you together in your, your mother's womb. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for you. God loves you. And some would say, well, but yeah, but all of my sin. And that's, that's why I think Paul includes the next phrase, even when we were dead in our transgressions. See, God is all-knowing. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. There's nothing hidden before him. And despite all of your sin and despite all of your brokenness, he loves you. There's no one that has gone too far. Nothing that you could have done. No place you could have been that would eliminate God's love for you. God loves you, 
The picture here is pretty powerful. We were dead, enslaved sinners, destined for hell, but God was rich in mercy, great in love, and despite all of our brokenness, despite all of our sin, he loved us. And then he describes our present life in Christ. Now here, this is a description of what God does to anyone who turns to him in faith. Listen to what it looks says right here in the latter portion of verse five. He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And notice who's doing all the work in this verse, God. God saved us. God made us alive. Those two words describe past actions with abiding results that God took our broken, dead, enslaved, and doomed lives and caused us to be born again. He made us alive with a a new life and and a new path. And notice here, made us alive together with Christ, that there's a union between us and Christ. He died, we died. He's been raised We've been raised. His life becomes our life. See, Christianity is not simply following the teachings of Christ. It's not just following a set of rules and regulation. No, Christianity is a union with Christ. We become a vine to a branch, a body part to a body, a bride to a bridegroom, a sheep to a shepherd, and his life becomes our life. His victory becomes our victory. He conquered sin, Satan, and death in his death and resurrection, and we get to share in that victory. He's holy, we're holy. Do you know what this means? The implications of this are huge. It means that no one can know the salvation and rebirth in Christ and stay the same. It's not possible. We're saved, we're changed, transformed from death to life. The old is gone, the new has come. The Red Sea has collapsed on our past. We're changed and we can't go back. It's not that we shouldn't go back, It's that we can't go back. We can't go back any more than a a butterfly can go back to being a caterpillar. We've been changed in Christ. And this is not the power of positive thinking. This is reality. And you may sin, but I can guarantee you this, in Christ, you won't be comfortable. God will convict you and draw you back to himself. And the things that you had no desire for in the past. Now suddenly through faith in Christ you have desire for. One of my favorite points in discipleship when you see a new believer and you begin to meet with them. One of my favorite moments, it'll happen every time you begin to meet with a new believer. They'll say to you, I was reading in God's word the other day and I'll stop them right there. And I'll ask them at any time prior to faith in Christ, did you get up one day and say, boy, I really need to read my Bible. And they'll say, I never had a day like that. And yet now, through faith in Christ, suddenly they're drawn to God's word. They have a desire to read his word and to hear his voice. And then suddenly they have a desire that they want to go to church. They want to be around God's people. And then they begin to have a desire to to be a part of his mission. What's happened? They've been changed. They've been reborn through faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved. And then he says what? That we're seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I love this. Saved and seated in the heavenly places. We, we, we know that at the moment of salvation, we don't suddenly just go to be with God in heaven. So what's he, what's he doing here? What does this mean, we've been seated? 
What it means is that our, our salvation and our eternal destination is so secure that we can talk about it in the past tense. Isn't that good news? We've been saved. We've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And then, and then we also see we're a showpiece. You and I are God's showpiece to demonstrate the riches of his grace. He saved us. He, he seated us. Why would he do all this? Well, he tells us in verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the wonder of all, all of this, the whole purpose of this work. God saving us, God sending his son for us, uh, securing us, seating us in the heavenly places, giving us the glorious riches of heaven. He's doing all of that so that someday in the coming ages, he could show off just how much he's given to us in Christ. So that one day when we get heaven, nobody will be able to say, look at what I've done. Look, boy, look at what I accomplished. You see, if you could somehow earn God's favor and grace, then one day when you got to heaven, you could say, look at me, look at what I've done. Look how great I am. As I thought about this week, I, don't, <laughs> I can't think of a more deplorable place to be than a place where everybody's bragging about all that they've done. And God says there'll be none of that, none of that in heaven. Heaven will be a place. <laughs> I was thinking about being in heaven and the angels who, it, Peter tells us, they long to look into these things. And the angels saying, God, you're going to give all that to him? You know, I saw that guy. He's the biggest knucklehead of them all. Do you know how, God, do you know how much he let you down? You're going to give all this to him? And God responding, Yes. Because my grace is incomplete. You don't have anything to compare this to. That's the greatness of my grace in Christ Jesus. When we get to heaven, it'll be a place where God shows off his grace and he gets all the glory. And then in verse 8, we see this phrase repeated throughout the passage, but in verse 8 states it most clearly. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. A lot of people have this idea of grace as being some kind of synergistic work between God and man, kind of like a divine assist. Uh, they think of it as, as you're floating down this river headed towards hell and God throws you a life preserver and you reach out in your effort and you grab it and you pull yourself safely to shore. Listen to me, that is not grace. No, grace is you and I were floating down a river and we didn't want salvation and quite frankly, we are, were enjoying the current of the river and aggravated by this person who kept throwing a stupid life preserver at us. That I don't like him, I don't want him, and by the way, I don't even believe in waterfalls. Nothing's gonna happen to me. I'm enjoying the current of this sin and this water and I'm a really good swimmer. That was all of us prior to faith in Jesus Christ. See, grace is not us working with God. It's God seeing us. It's God saving us. It's God seeing you dead in your trespasses and sins in the brokenness of your life and saying to you, live. And we were reborn. The most powerful picture of salvation in the New Testament is Lazarus coming out of the grave. Lazarus is spiritually a picture of every one of us. 
we were dead. Another good picture of it is the garrison demoniac who was chained up amongst the tomb. He was dead. They just chained him up with dead people because he was dead. Lazarus is in a tomb. He's dead. And Jesus walks up. Two words in the Greek. Lazarus, out. And Lazarus walked out and removed the grave clothes. Christ brought him back to life. That's salvation. I would imagine for most of you, I imagine all of you that truly know Christ, you didn't wake up one morning and say, today I'm going to be saved. No, you just happened to be walking through life and for all practical purposes, you were quite happy with your sinful condition and didn't really want God, but God found you. God intervened. He caused you to see your sin and through faith, you were reborn. He said, live, and you came to life. It leaves no room for boasting on our part. It even says here, you've been saved by grace through faith. Faith is what you do when you don't need to do anything else. All the demands of God have been met in Christ. All the justice of God has been met in Christ. I can do nothing. I do not need to do anything. Not because I'm lazy, but because God is so thorough. Christ said on the cross, what? It is finished we don't have to do anything because there's nothing left to do listen Jesus plus anything is not the gospel of Jesus Christ it's Jesus it's faith in Christ alone nothing in my hands I bring but simply to the cross I cling That's salvation by grace through faith. And then we see our purpose in Christ, verse 10. Uh, This could be a whole message on its own. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship. That word workmanship, the root word is poema. It's the word from which we get poem. But it's used in the New Testament in reference to God's creation of the heavens and the earth. Now think about that. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He just spoke. There was nothing, and he spoke, and there was everything. He made everything from nothing. When it comes to our salvation work, God spoke. And our salvation came from nothing, nothing on our part. In fact, Paul, when he's describing salvation in Corinthians, he says, for Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glorious face of Christ. But God, who said, let let there be light, has shown the light of the gospel in our hearts. Paul's making a comparison to when God in creation said, let there be light, and the lights came on. Wouldn't you love to see that? but that's exactly what occurs every time somebody places their faith in Christ. God says, let there be light, and he shines the light of the gospel, and they're lit up with the grace of Jesus Christ. And then God says, you're you're his workmanship. You're his poem. You're you're his work of art. You're, You're his masterpiece. You and I, we're we're walking illustrations 
of the power and grace of God. (laughs) Paul also said to the Corinthians, consider your calling, brethren, that not many of you are wise, mighty, and noble. (laughs) Paul says, look around, Corinthians, you're not the brightest in the world. But God has chosen the base things. He's chosen the weak things. Why? To shame the strong. To show off. God takes us who have nothing. And he bestows his riches upon us. And the only explanation is God. And we become a masterpiece. Now I don't know about you. But most days I don't feel like a masterpiece. I feel like I'm hanging by a thread most days. But this is not God who can't see our flaws. But it's a God who's able to see what you will become in Christ Jesus. All of us are a work in progress. God is molding us and shaping us. But the goodness of God is and the wonder of God is that is in his sovereignty. He can see what you will eventually become before it occurs. And you, one day, you will be made perfect. Now, it's going to take a lifetime to do it, and it won't be complete until you see your Savior face to face. But he's making you into a masterpiece to demonstrate his grace. You're his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice here, not by good works, but for good works. But faith and works go together. James says, faith without works is dead. They're indivisible. Faith that doesn't show up in your life is not faith. It's not real faith. It's not true faith. And it's not that you lost your faith. It's that you never had faith to begin with. You can't know this kind of rebirth and not be changed. Not because you're a hard worker, but because God is good. And what God starts, he always finishes. Prepared beforehand. Before the creation of the world, God had an amazing role for you to play in his work of redemption. And you've heard me say this so many times before, but this is what's amazing to me about salvation. Number one, it's beyond imagination to me that God would love me enough to save me. Even in my transgressions and sins, he would save me. But if I had been God, I would have saved me and said, sit over there in the corner, shut your mouth, and don't do a thing. You'll mess the whole deal up. But the beauty of this is God saves us and says, now I've got some stuff for you to do. And if you notice here, you love the way Paul does this. I think Paul wants them to know there's some work for you to do. But he doesn't start out and say, get to work, and here's why. He just overwhelms them with God's grace and his salvation. And then he says, oh, by the way, God's got some work for you to do. Listen to me this morning. If we have to coerce you to get involved in the work of ministry, you don't get it. Quite frankly, you'll never hear me beg you to give. Because if we have to beg you or twist your arm to give, you don't get it. Those who have received this kind of riches in Christ Jesus, there's no way we can't be givers. And by the way, we hear a lot that people will say, 
you know what? I'm just, I don't really have anything to offer. I don't know that God can use me. You see, here's my past. I'm not sure I can be used. And thinking of those excuses, I thought of some, some of the people God used in the Bible. So let me give you a list here. Those of you that may have an excuse. Noah was a drunkard. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. Moses was a murderer. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Timothy was too young. David was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. How about that for a bad deal? Job was bankrupt. John the Baptist ran around in a loincloth and ate locusts. Peter was hot-tempered. John was self-righteous. The disciples fell asleep while Jesus had commanded them to pray. Martha fretted and worried about everything. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. And Lazarus, well, he was dead. I'm pretty sure I've just taken away any excuse that you could come up with for not to participate in God's work. If he saved you, he has work for you to do. You know, the beauty of this is it demonstrates the fullness of God's salvation, that God saves us to the fullest extent, past, present, and future. That if somebody asks you, are you saved, you can say to them, what do you mean? Are you asking me, have I been saved? Yes, I have. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I've been declared judiciously righteous. The blood of Jesus Christ applied to my account. If you're asking me, am I being saved? My answer to that would be yes. Through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in my life, God is changing me day by day and conforming me more and more into the masterpiece of Jesus Christ. You know, they asked Michelangelo, how are you going to take that stone and turn it into a sculpture of David? And he said, well, I'm just going to take away all the parts that aren't David. Do you know how Jesus works in us? He just takes out all the parts that aren't Jesus. It's going to take a lifetime of work, but he's forming you into his masterpiece. And then you can ask him, are you saying I will be saved? Because that's true as, as well. You and I, through faith in Christ, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been saved from the power of sin. Freed from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. And one day we'll be freed from the presence of sin when we abide with our Savior forever in heaven. I don't know about you, but as I studied this week, I was overwhelmed. I've studied this passage several times but there were several times this week when in my office just studying, I was weeping. I thought to myself, nobody else might get anything out of this, but boy, it's been good for me. Because just like you, can I tell you, if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I'll get so far along in my faith that I'll start to look down on other people. And I'll start to think that I'm something. Do you know the key to the Christian life? 
is never forgetting the depth of your own ineptitude. That apart from Jesus Christ, you're nothing. But in Jesus Christ, and through him and for his glory, a limitless, infinite amount of possibilities. Do we have a hymn this morning? Kind of a gospel southern song. Faith and I, last night, Faith goes, have you told Bill? He may not know this song. I said, goodness. Bill knows this song. In fact, this morning, he, was, he told me the story, so he knows the whole deal. In 1963, there was a young man. He was the youngest of a southern gospel singing group, and he was stationed in Fort, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, in the military. And while he was there, having grown up musician, music just kind of came natural to him, he wrote a song. And uh, he found out he had leave with the military, and his family was doing a concert in Memphis, Tennessee. And so he took off. He hitchhiked from South Carolina to Tennessee, 600 miles. He arrived at the concert, talked with his family, said, I'd like to perform this song that I've written And so they sang it there at the concert. He did not know, but there was a very famous entertainer and musician who just so happened to be in the audience by the name of Elvis Presley. And Elvis Presley heard the song and said, I've got to meet that young man. So Elvis met him after the concert and had a conversation with him and said, do you mind if I record that song on my upcoming album? And uh, Mylon said, sure. Elvis recorded it, and within one year, over a hundred artists had recorded that song. And to me, it really describes our life without Jesus. Because without him, we'd be dying. Without him, we'd be enslaved. Without him, we'd be hopeless. But with him, thank God, (laughs) I'm saved. Y'all want to sing that? Some of you know it. Pastor Bill knows it. I asked Pastor Bill if he could sing it and perform it like Elvis, and he can. Bill, give us just a little Elvis. Give it, hold, you just got to hear this. I mean, this is how good he is. Listen. Without him, I could do nothing. Y'all love that? Keep it going, Bill. Keep Without it going. Say it up. Without him, I'd
second verse. To me, it's Ephesians 2. I just said it. Without him, I'd be dying. Without him, I'd be enslaved. Without him, I'd be hopeless. But with Jesus, thank God I'm saved. Let's sing this verse. Without him, I would be dying. Father, we declare that today. We shudder to think where we would be today without Christ. Dead in our transgressions and sins. Enslaved to the world and flesh and Satan. and No hope on our own. But with Jesus, thank God we're saved. God, I pray that you never let us forget where we came from. And God burdened our hearts for a lost world that, that they're in the same condition we were in. And I pray that we would be your instruments to tell them about the Savior that's changed us. But God, we pray that you would move. Do what you did for us, shine the light of the gospel into our hearts. Make us alive, reborn into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.